Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus today is on the coronavirus outbreak, as a sharp rise in cases in several countries outside China, where it originated, gives rise to concerns that health authorities across the globe may be losing the battle to contain the spread of the disease. The Irish Times health editor Paul Cullen has the latest for us on that story and joins us in studio. I'll also be talking to Peter Goff in China about how the outbreak is affecting daily life there. Later, we'll be looking at the aftermath of the Australian wildfires, in particular the catastrophic effect they had on animal populations and the efforts made to address the plight of koalas and many endangered species on Kangaroo Island off the country's south coast. But first, it's coronavirus and Paul Cullen is here to talk about the latest developments. Paul, in recent days, we seem to be waking up daily to new and worrying headlines about this virus, COVID-19, to give it its specific name. Today, Tuesday, we learned that a hotel in Tenerife in the Canary Islands is in lockdown after an Italian doctor staying there tested positive for the virus. Is, is this virus now spreading at a rate that's causing major concern among health authorities everywhere? Last week, the uh, head of the World Health Organization said that the window of opportunity for fighting this disease was narrowing. And in the view of a lot of experts around the world, it's gone now. And we are very close if we're not already at a pandemic stage. And that means that we don't just have a massive outbreak in China, but it's it's, uh, prospering. The virus is prospering on four continents, most notably Italy, South Korea, um, and now worryingly as well, also in Iran and, and other countries in the Middle East. So we have a very serious situation at the moment. Notwithstanding all of that, Paul, the, the WHO has decided for now not to describe it as a pandemic. What is a pandemic, first of all? And, and does it matter whether that label is applied or not? It probably doesn't. The WHO itself doesn't like the term and it's shied away from using it formally. Although I think in colloquial use, it's going to emerge a lot in the next few days. Basically, a pandemic means that the disease is spreading of itself in different parts of the world. So up to now, we've seen since the start of this year, this has been a, a China-based disease, first in in Hubei province and then in different parts of China. Ironically, China is getting things under control and we have seen a reduction in the number of new cases continually since the 2nd of February. But what has happened is that in the in that month in January or so, um, that the disease got out of China and got into other countries and is now transmitting person to person in a lot of other countries around the world. And which countries are giving most concern right now in terms of the numbers of cases and, and the rate of transmission? Well, uh, public health experts have always said that their greatest fear is that the disease would get into a country with a fragile health structure, perhaps one in conflict, um, where A, we're unable to test, B, we're unable to treat. Um, so it does seem likely that that is, that is beginning to happen. So, But we're seeing countries at all ranges of development fight this disease. Obviously, in China, massive outbreak of disease, but um, huge measures taken by the Chinese, um, draconian in the view of some people, to try and uh, control the disease. You've got a country like uh, Singapore with a very advanced uh, health health service, um, which has also taken its measures. Um, But now of late, you see it in, as I mentioned, in Iran, for example, spreading into Iraq. Uh, Every day there are new countries. uh, And it clearly uh, seems to be loose in countries with poorly developed infrastructure. And that's a huge worry. And we may never know how bad uh, it is at the moment. And what kind of measures are being taken to contain the spread? Does more need to be done? Well, we're still in the containment phase, which is that um, uh, countries are trying to 
prevent the disease from spreading and then deal with the cases within the areas uh, that they're seeing. So, you know, uh, we've seen this in China. We see this in, in Italy, where the authorities have effectively placed 10 or 11 towns in, in northern Italy under lockdown. Schools are closed. Restaurants are closed at six o'clock um, and such measures. A lot of people think who who know who know a lot about public health, they think that um, we're almost at the end of this phase and we may have to accept that the uh, disease is endemic across the world. And in this situation, you move to a mitigation phase where you just try and uh, deal with the most severely uh, ill cases. Um, you try, try to provide the facilities for them and um, you it becomes a race against time really to... Um, to stave off the disease and to hope that remedies in form of treatment or perhaps vaccines become available. If the Chinese authorities were seen to be getting on top of this, and I suppose that was the last half full a few days ago that you were talking about, can lessons be learned then in the rest of the world, you know, from what they did? Can they not be replicated, those measures elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, really, um, in trying to prevent something like this, um, some of the measures may seem excessive and there's undoubtedly worries um, about the economic impact of this virus. But what public health experts are saying is that you cannot really overreact to the threat of something uh, like a pandemic that seems to be occurring and that the measures that you take now, however extreme they may be seen, will be worth worth it in the in the end because if the genie gets out of the bottle it becomes very difficult uh, and even initially we see they're unable to trace uh, the original case um, we see that uh, the, um, an Italian doctor who traveled from Italy to Tenerife has brought that the disease to a hotel there that we're just learning about so um, you really um, are well rewarded by Measures that may seem excessive and draconian, um, but they may su- succeed in curbing the spread of a disease. It's part of the problem that, that measures that are open maybe to an authoritarian regime like China, which was able to lock down an entire city like Wuhan. It's more difficult, is it, in Western democracies to impose those kind of measures? Well, it is true, for example, in Europe, that in most of Europe, we have pretty free movement of people and goods. Um, Ireland is outside the Schengen Agreement, which is uh, interesting because it, it, if we're presented with an extreme situation, it will give us greatest freedom freedom for manoeuvre. Um, but um, the laws are there both across Europe and in Ireland uh, to deal with such emergency situations, as I understand it. And um, I think we might be surprised how, about how quickly the situation will change if it needs to change uh, and if cases are confirmed in Ireland. And how well prepared are we in Ireland for that eventuality? Well, I think uh, by now we've had five or six weeks uh, in which the health service here and the health authorities have had a chance to prepare. They've had, you know, probably up almost 100 suspected cases, fortunately none of them confirmed so far, which are, formed for, uh, which are a form of dry run, really, for practice. Mm-hmm. The algorithms, as they call them, for dealing with suspected cases are, are all there. Um, the message has gone around. The various committees are sitting. There are doubts within the health service. As we, as we know about our health services, it's overcrowded. Um, it's running at capacity. I spoke to an intensive care doctor today who says he hasn't had a free bed since Christmas in his hospital. Uh, and he says, where am I going to put any 
seriously ill coronavirus patients. I don't have any free Who beds. needs to be isolated. Who needs to be isolated. And he's citing uh, a Lancet report that came out yesterday which showed that this uh, disease particularly affects the old and the sick and the critically ill. In fact, the mortality rate among patients who ended up in hospital and who went to intensive care was over 60%. So it really chops down people who are uh, vulnerable. And um, if we have no we have no space in our ICUs. So we've been looking at several scenarios in Ireland. One is that we manage to avoid a case. Another is that um, it breaks out, such as it's broken out in Italy, and we've obviously got a major problem then. And perhaps the most likely one is that perhaps we have a few cases, but we track them down. But the doctor I was talking to today was saying, I'm not even sure we could cope with that situation because of the lack in intensive care beds. And should we be bracing ourselves in Ireland and elsewhere for public control measures in the weeks and months ahead, such as uh, are we going to be looking at a scenario where you have restrictions on public gatherings and cancellation of sports events and all of that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, talk of the coronavirus is everywhere uh, on the radio, in the streets, at the water fountains everywhere. Um, and we do have to get a bit of a reality check. I suppose I have to remind people there are no confirmed cases in Ireland, first of all. But it is has come closer to us and it is going to impinge upon our uh, things that we take for granted, such as traveling. And um, we may need to curtail our um, travel and places of mass gathering in order to minimize the risk that it poses. Um, it's probably going to become a lot clearer within the next 24 hours when I think you will see a series of measures announced in Ireland and across Europe uh, to, to uh, meet the increased threat posed by the outbreak in Italy and its knock-on effects across the continent. What's known at this stage about the, the fatality rate among people who contract COVID-19? Well, the, the um, fatality rate that has been quoted um, most often I mean, we don't know that much about the disease, but about 2% is reckoned to be the fatality right now. That might be an overestimate because we're not taking into account uh, milder cases, particularly if people are carrying the disease and they don't know they're carrying the disease. And that's, that question hasn't clearly been answered yet. But say 2%, that's 20% more than the, the flu. It's a lot less than the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or, or SARS-2. Um, the other issue then is how many people it would infect. And it seems to be able to infect a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen, um, we've heard talk about super spreaders and so on. So even a disease with a low fatality rate, if it, affect, if it uh, infects a lot of people, can have a very serious impact. It can kill a lot, kill a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic example yeah. is the Spanish flu, which had a, a low lethality, but uh, got around the world and killed uh, tens of millions of people a, a century ago, I should emphasize. Yes, yeah. And just to recap, you mentioned it was the, the vulnerabilities, if you like, the age groups and so on. Who's more vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we've so much to learn about this, but I mean, every day new papers are coming out um, from China, you know, analyzing the first victims. And it seems clear that children are by and large spared. Um, people who have underlying health issues are vulnerable. 
and people over 60 and, and old, uh, the older you get, the more vulnerable you may be. And also smokers seem to be more vulnerable and men seem to get it more than, than women. But don't forget that 80% of cases will be minor enough yes. and people will make a good recovery. And just when you say children uh, tend to be spared, you mean they don't they don't get it at all? They don't contract it, or yeah, they or it doesn't affect them as just as badly. just as uh, with the seasonal flu, or some types of seasonal flu uh, um, seem to affect different groups of the population more than others. For example, the seasonal flu we had last Christmas affected children a lot, and the children's hospitals were full. Um, when it declined, a different type of flu came along, which didn't really affect the children. So um, that's gone down a lot. So it's no different from that situation. Um, it's just that we don't know so much about it. And we're only learning about it now. And presumably the search is on for a, a vaccine um, for this. Is, is there a, um, how long might it take before a vaccine is available? Yeah, different groups are, 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 are coming together to try and uh, research a vaccine. And I've heard different estimates for the amount of time it will happen. But it's likely to take anywhere between six months, and that's being very optimistic, to 18 months. So perhaps in time for, for the next winter. So it, that's why it is a kind of race against time. If Ireland can hold off for as long as possible against this, we are seeing our flu numbers decline. We are seeing some pressure come off our health system uh, so that we're not faced with two massive challenges at the same time. Is there also some hope or expectation that, as you know, uh, the northern hemisphere, you know, enters the spring and summer months and weather gets warmer, that that could slow the transmission? Yeah, the hope is there, but it's just a hope. We don't know for a fact. That's what happens with our own flu, our seasonal flu. Um, so it seems likely that that may be the case, but we, we don't know this for sure. And we'll only see as, 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 as winter turns into spring and spring turns into summer. And Paul, you were in Geneva in, in recent days and you, you met the most senior people in the World Health Organization. Um, are they satisfied they're getting the cooperation and level of support they need from, from countries and public health authorities around the world in dealing with this? Well, I think among public health or health uh, groups around the world, there's been a phenomenal coming together. And never before, I think, have so many papers come out and, you know, we've heard about the virus being sequenced and uh, testing facility, you know, testing assays being made available right around the world. It's been phenomenal. It's never been uh, seen before. On a more political level, it's a different picture, I think, because the World Health Organization has said, we, well, we, we need money to fight this threat. And uh, they've received a certain amount of pledges. I think they were looking for $675 million. And as of last week, they had only got received pledges of $100 million. And I saw today a figure... Uh, uh, which was a fraction of that uh, for the amount they've actually received. So a car doesn't drive on on water or on, on air. So really, uh, if the international community is serious about fighting a disease that doesn't respect national boundaries, they probably do need to do more to shore up the international effort through the World Health Organization. And finally, Paul, it probably can't be repeated often enough, but what's, what's the advice uh, given to people at an individual level? You know, what should we be doing to protect ourselves and people around us? I'd like to make a, a point here, which I've been uh, pondering recently. Um, it seems to me we have a problem with respiratory health in Ireland. We, we blame it on our damn climate or whatever, but we've the highest rates of um, COPD, high rates of asthma. Um, we fall foul of the flu every year in massive numbers. And we seem to be very fatalistic about it. Now, there's a lot we could do to improve that. Um, but one of the things we could do to improve our protection against those traditional ailments and this new virus is to be more hygienic, to wash our hands properly and often, to stop touching our faces, 
uh, to use hand sanitizers and or make them available more uh, uh, widely than they are. Uh, and, and, and it's far better, I think, in, res- in, in, in response to any health issue that arises to be active rather than passive. So rather than fretting or worrying about this or um, listening too often to the radio uh, uh, where people are fretting and worrying about this, be active, practice good hygiene. You'll get fewer colds, you'll get less flu and you'll protect yourself against uh, the virus. Paul, thank you. Thanks again to our health editor, Paul Cullen, for that overview. I'm joined now on the line from Chengdu in western China by our correspondent, Peter Goff. Uh, Peter, Chengdu is more than a thousand kilometres west of Wuhan, the the epicentre of this outbreak. And yet when we last spoke on the podcast a few weeks ago, daily life there where you are was already affected in a a pretty serious way. What's it like where you are now? I mean, how, how, how is your daily life affected? Over the past three or four days, we've started seeing people coming out of their enforced hibernation. It's been about five weeks here under lockdown in in this city, as in most most of China. And outside of Hubei, for the past two weeks, there's been um, a very slow increase in the number of new infections. So uh, the conference is growing that um, it's not spreading around the country, certainly like like it was in the early, early phases of this outbreak. Uh, the government is now trying to get people back to work. It is encouraging people to uh, exercise cautions, but but go back to their, their workplaces and so on. So uh, currently, I think think about seventy percent of businesses are still closed in this city and across most of China. There is uh, all the schools are are closed, and they'll continue to be so for for quite some time. But they're trying to encourage uh, shops and factories and so on to start opening now um, in the, in the near future. People are gradually moving back to their places of work. There are an estimated about 200 million migrant workers who are still in their hometowns who need to get back to the cities and the towns where they work in. That brings with it a huge risk, of course, because they'll be crisscrossing the country and they'll be travelling on trains and on buses and the possibility of a further um, outbreak or, or extra contagion is, is there and is, is, is high. Might there be a concern, Peter, that, you know, because the situation in China relative to other countries outside China, where there's maybe increasing concern, that the situation in China does seem to be improving a little bit, would there be a concern that the, the Chinese government or the authorities might be too keen to get people back to work quickly and get the economy moving again? Yes, there, there are big risks involved in trying to get the economy moving again. It is something that the um, the government is very wary about. Uh, the WHO have just left after a two-week um, uh, visit here, and it was something they were discussing too as something that is going to be a major point of concern. That is the biggest concern to them right now, as well as these new clusters that they're seeing in countries like South Korea, Italy and Iran. So these are the two biggest points they're watching at the moment. And just coming back to the point about daily life, Peter, if you like, I asked you about how things are where you are. Now, I know you've been in contact in recent days with people living in Wuhan, you know, right at the epicentre of this outbreak, including some Irish people who've been confined to their homes there for more than a month. Um, Is that situation likely to change for them then in, in the immediate future? People in Wuhan have been told they have to stay where they are until at least March the 10th. So they'll have more than another two weeks uh, in in the homes, the the quarantine uh, re- restrictions are vary from place to place. In in Hubei itself, 
and in some other um, nearby areas, it's extremely strict. And many of the apartment places, they're not allowed to leave their homes, even cross, cross their uh, thresholds. So um, in some of the places, they're allowed to leave, actually leave their buildings and walk around outside in the compound outside, but not leave the actual uh, the, the, the walled community they live in. Uh, that will be in force until at least March the 10th, the government have said. They have, t- have told all businesses in Hubei to stay closed until March the 10th. And uh, certainly schools, colleges and so on, they will be closed indefinitely. There's no uh, no reopening date for those yet. Across the rest of the country, it's not as stringent as that. There's 760 million people in some kind of quarantine, like myself here. So, so But there, uh, in, in many parts, it's um, it's more relaxed. You're able to leave and buy groceries and so on. Um, and uh, But you're not allowed to have visitors. You're not allowed... Um, uh, you know, and you're not allowed to come and go freely, but you and you have to have passes and you get temperature checks and so on. But it's more free than in than it is in, in Hubei. The Irish there, there are about nine that we know of. The embassy knows of that are that are in Hubei currently. Uh, so some of them are have it are living in by themselves or are currently by themselves in the apartment. So that's, that's tough going. They've been there for five weeks uh, without any human contact. Uh, some are, so there's some they're scattered around to the province. Um, they're in they're in contact with the embassy, I guess, and they get they're in con- contact with each other too on on um, online groups and so on. So there's um, there's a bit of support mechanism for there, and their communities that where they live in, they deliver food and so on and uh, daily necessities to them when they need them. So um, there's they are being looked after to an extent, but they'll be all very very happy when this is over. It's been quite an ordeal for them. Yeah, I mean, how are they coping with that level of confinement? I think the boredom, the tedium is really the, the biggest factor for them. It's just a day to day where they're just sitting around and, and not much to do. Uh, very, uh, you know, you're, you're cooped up in, in a small apartment. Um, they say it's difficult, um, but they're, they're managing. They understand the, the, uh, the necessity for these restrictions. Um, but they're all, I think they're all very eager for it to end. Looking forward to, um, to getting back out. They had been, because the numbers were, the infections were dropping in recent days, there had been hopes that the restrictions would lift sooner than March the 10th. But um, the government did make that announcement. Um, so it seems like that's enforced for at least another two and a half weeks. So uh, they're, they're just, uh, but at least for the first time now, they have a light at the end of the tunnel, they have a date to look forward to, So, whereas before it was just totally indefinite. We spoke previously, Peter, and, and you wrote about the fact, and indeed it was widely covered in, in media, that the authorities in Wuhan were initially slow to respond to the outbreak, and in particular they were slow to give you know, necessary public information. But I, I think things did improve after that, and, and China indeed has been praised by the World Health Organization for the stringent measures that it has introduced to contain the disease. What's the sense from inside China now about how the authorities are dealing with it? Yes, it's sort of it's sort of been a, you know, a, an outbreak of two halves. The first six weeks were certainly, um, you know, there was a, a big choke on the information flow and so on, and it was um, it was essentially sort of a, a covered up and concealed and um, downplayed to a large extent. But then once it got to that point of about January twentieth or so, when it got to a central level and they did start making announcements saying this was a very severe outbreak, the the um, there has been a lot of praise for their for how they handle it. Like I say, they've just in the history of humanity, we've never seen anything like this. I think, and the WHO have gone to pains to stress they've never seen anything so comprehensive in terms of the mobilisation to try to combat this. When you have literally seven hundred and sixty million people under quarantine, when you've shuttered um, an entire economy, and uh, you've, you've cut off the the whole transport network, it's it's. Um, it's a pretty uh, mass mobilisation effort. So there's, um, there's a lot of uh, credit going to them for that. There's concern, of course, that 
in other countries now, would they be able to mobilise to that extent, you know, if, if the outbreak um, happened to, to such an extent? So um, they are getting credit for, for that response, certainly. And are, are people free to share their concerns if they still have concerns on social media and so on? And what about, you know, immediate scrutiny? Is that is that allowed really in this in this case? It's not. Uh, there's um, there was a big outpouring after the doctor died, uh, the, the whistleblowing doctor died some weeks ago, um, Dr. Li Wenliang, tragically. And there was a massive outpouring of uh, grief and anger after that. There was in the in the few hours after he passed, there was something like 10 billion posts online um, in, in a very short space of time. Um, a lot of it highly critical of the of the government and the Communist Party themselves and the leadership and the system that sort of brought this to bear. Uh, but then very quickly that tap was turned off and there has um, they censored um, tens of billions of, of messages. They blocked things. They blocked you know, most people to use Facebook or, or Twitter or anything like that. You need a VPN. They've blocked those for the past few weeks and they're not working here at all in China. So they've really choked um, the sort of uh, the flow of information there online so, and, and are con- controlling it very, very tightly. Okay. So overall, it sounds like a very a mixed picture, Peter, I suppose. But but uh, what I'm getting from you that is the, there is confidence there that China may have turned a corner here, that with the decline in new cases in Hubei, that um, China may be getting to grips with this outbreak. Yes, I think there's, people are cautiously optimistic at this point and hoping to um, hoping to sort of get back to normality and get back to sort of get the get back to work and get the economy moving again. Um, and that might take another couple of weeks or so on. Of course, the big factor will be: will there be a, will there be a, um, a comeback in cases? Will will we see new clusters and new, our new outbreaks um, after that? So that'll have to be watched very closely. Uh, and um, it'll, it's going to be a very a very sort of nerve wracking uh, few weeks for the authorities to as they as they sort of very tentatively take steps to get this back moving again. Okay, Peter Goff in Chengdu. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. More than 1 billion animals died in the recent Australia wildfires. This includes over 25,000 koalas and many endangered species on Kangaroo Island, just southwest of Adelaide. Erica Martin is the CEO of Humane Society International in Australia, an animal protection agency. The society deployed volunteers to Kangaroo Island to help treat the thousands of injured animals and supply much-needed food and water. As we reach the end of fire season, Erica Martin takes a look back at her time spent on Kangaroo Island during the search and rescue mission. Kangaroo Island is a is a small island just south of Adelaide in South Australia, and it's a very very unique environment. It's got a broad range of Australian wildlife: kangaroos, wallabies, um, the Kangaroo Island dunnart, which is a, a an endangered species, uh, cockatoos. And then, of course, the koalas, which have become iconic um, part of this rescue mission. But in fact, they're not native to the island. They were, in fact, introduced there, but flourished. Um, so there's, there's a really wide diversity of, uh, of animal life on Kangaroo Island. Well, scores of fires are burning out of control across Australia amid a heat wave, which has seen temperatures exceed 40 Celsius in every state. Now to Australia, where they're facing those massive fires, already among the worst in that country's history, with more than 12 million acres. Once a haven for native Australian animals, now Hanson Bay Wildlife Sanctuary is a graveyard. We hit the ground running when we got to Kangaroo Island and went straight out, more or less, to some of the fire-ravaged areas. And and it's 
it it was it was absolutely bleak um to describe what we saw it was nothing but gray nothing but ash and charred um trees as you walked into the landscape you actually were just stepping over the charred bodies of animals it was koalas lying there um wallabies tiny little wallabies with their tails charred um up in the air it was it was like something out of a horror movie when we first walked into those um into those plantations i genuinely did not think we would find anything i mean it was it was just oblivion as far as you could see um the the first hour we were out there we were just thinking we're going to find absolutely nothing um and and then of course we we did we found survivors in amongst in amongst the ashes we found totally remarkable um survivors who who were almost untouched by the fires um especially some of the younger joeys and i i think it happened because the the mother koala would have wrapped her body around um the baby and 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 so the joey was protected by the mother so so some of the young ones we found didn't have had very very few injuries we found others that that had everything from minor burns to severe burns and their coats were singed and charred the worst injuries that we saw on the island were in fact the the kangaroos they had just horrendous burns to their feet every single kangaroo that we rescued on the island was euthanized by the vets once we took it in and and we knew that would be the case it's it's horrific um but even with the ones who were put down you felt you were rescuing them you know these these animals could have survived for for many many days um um dying a very very slow death and and in agony so even even for the ones that we did bring to to a quicker death it was we still felt like we were doing something that was very worthwhile so even the bad stories felt like we were we were doing something that mattered Kangaroo Island Wildlife Park was designated as the the center to drop off um any injured wildlife to and there were there were a lot of locals on the island were were also you know bringing wildlife in from their own properties wildlife they were seeing on the side of the road um we knocked off quite late one night and went to the to the local pub um for a beverage afterwards and uh and two boys came in and and, and saw our shirts and said hey you're just the people we were hoping to see we've got a we've got a koala in the back of our truck can you help us so we were able to go back out and and pick it up and and be able to take that one straight back to the vets as well for some urgent care in australia we were heading towards an extinction crisis before these fires and this is this is hurtled us over the cliff of that crisis on kangaroo island alone there's two species that that could be could potentially be lost forever there's a a small mouse-like creature called the kangaroo island dunnart um there were only probably less than 500 um individuals left before the fires um so so they're scrambling now to see if there are survivors um and the other the other species is the glossy black cockatoo uh and the the food source of that cockatoo has just been destroyed there is virtually nothing left so even even if some of the birds have survived uh, their their longer term survival is is dubious at best 
I'm hoping the island can and will rebuild. It's a place I hadn't gone to before this crisis, um, and it's a place I will go back to for vacations. Kangaroo Island has touched my heart and, and will always have a place in my life from now on. To call this the new normal is, is utterly, utterly terrifying. It is what we've been through um, in the last couple of months is, is, is hell on earth. I'm remaining totally hopeful that this is the wake-up call that we needed in this country. We have to be doing more to combat climate change. We have to be doing more to, to protect these incredible species um, that exist nowhere else in the world. This is the chance that we have to wake up and make changes. I'm hoping that we're not past the tipping point, that, that, that we haven't crossed the, the point of no return, and that we can, in fact, take those steps that we need, even if it's tough in the short term. You know, there will be some, there will be some pain in the short term if we do what's needed. But if we don't, what we will lose is everything. <laughs>